Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hi, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the first OIS Podcast of 2015. We hope you had a great holiday season and happy new year to all of you. Pleased to be joined by Abby Selnicker, President and CEO of Eleven Biotherapeutics. Abby, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Tom. My pleasure to be here. I hope you had a good uh, a good holiday stretch. Absolutely, ready to get back into action. Great. So uh, I'm 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 intrigued by. I'll just hop right into the questions. Uh, one of your one of Eleven's first investors was Third Rock Ventures, and they're obviously a firm that develops uh, generates a lot of buzz. Uh, as a venture capital firm with the suggestion that they do biotech a, a bit differently. Curious, what was your experience with the firm? Uh, are they as uh, as unique in, in how they manage their companies as uh, as they appear from the outside? Well, I think Third Rock is a fairly unique firm in how they start and staff companies from the very beginning. Um, do you think that a number of other venture firms are doing similar things now, but possibly not to the extent that Third Rock does the interesting thing is they're actually founders of companies. They get in there, they bring their, you know, really talented leadership resources into the company, sort of set a foundation, hire the talent to come in and take the companies uh, once they've really established them, but then they provide a continuity for the company and a lot of uh, resources that are central to third rock companies that we can take advantage of. Also provide sort of a community of uh, colleagues and peers that you can brainstorm with and learn from. So they are pretty unique in how comprehensive they are. But I would say that a number of venture firms are taking more and more initiative to found their companies and not just wait for the founders to come to them, uh, which is certainly in keeping with the third rock model. Mm-hmm. And how did their skill set jive with yours? You, you've got a lot of experience in, in pharmaceuticals and in ophthalmology. Uh, what was the experience of, of taking over Eleven? And what stage was it Eleven at when you became president and CEO, what, what was that experience like, like uh, starting with a, a, a new company or an almost brand new company? Yeah, so my former company, I sort of started um, when it was a little bit uh, younger than 11 was. 11 had been founded in early 2010, and I came in September of 2011. And there was pretty much a foundation set for our protein engineering platform that we used to apply for, uh, to developing these differentiated protein therapeutics for ophthalmic diseases, that foundation had been set, Uh, a lot of talent had been brought into the company, Uh, but when I did come in, I I found that really the opportunity for me was to take that talent and focus it in the area of ophthalmology because the company had not originally been completely focused on ophthalmic drug development. However, we did have our lead molecule, EDI005, that was the first um, product that came out of the protein engineering platform. and that molecule actually started to be uh, discovered and developed uh, just before I joined the company. Mm-hmm. It, it, how is the ophthalmology field uh, understood uh, in the in the public markets? Uh, you, you, it's it's an indication that's obviously gotten a lot of attention over the past decade. Is this a is this a, a field that has really kind of come into its own uh, in the eyes of, of public investors? And I ask, of course, because you were you successfully staged a an IPO last year. So how is ophthalmology viewed as public investors? And then maybe we can get into your experience in, in taking the company public. 
Sure. So I think that one of the things that's driving the public investor interest in ophthalmology is the fact that the market is growing considerably Mm -hmm. with the aging population and comorbidities of a number of uh, other diseases like diabetes and high blood pressure, et cetera. We are seeing an increase in the number of uh, patients who have ophthalmic diseases as well as a better understanding of the biology behind the number of these ophthalmic diseases. And I think that that's a more traditional biotech model when you really understand the science and you use the science to identify the right targets and then use the science to design and engineer the best molecules. And that's something that Eleven has been doing and I think that other companies are starting to do as well. So the typical biotech investor is starting to get an idea that ophthalmology is another really important therapeutic area for them to be focused in. So I do think it's become a much more mainstream One of the things that drives that also is when companies like Regeneron can be very successful with ILEA and really create incredible value in a relatively short period of time, I think that public investors see the opportunity for how similar technologies can be applied to a number of other diseases. So I think it's a great time for ophthalmology and it's a great time for innovation in ophthalmology, which is not something that was the traditional approach. It was a, a, an approach that previously was a lot of repurposing of previously um, established drugs, just made them more optimal for ophthalmic use. But with the innovation, I think it has really sort of sparked the interest of the public investor. Hmm. At what point did you think going public was possible, and, and what factors did you weigh in uh, making your decision to, to try the waters? Well, EDR005 is our novel inhibitor of IL-1. It's a protein eye drop, and that was really something very different. And we knew that if we could get that far enough along in the clinic, it was going to be noted as something with great value, especially in a market like dry eye disease, where, you know, just in the United States alone, we know that there are about 20 million people who have dry eye, and about 7 million of those people are not, um, adequately treated with some of the over-the-counter uh, tear-type therapies. So when you take the combination of a very substantial market, really highly innovative drug, the ability to move forward very quickly in the development of that drug, once we had completed our Phase two trials, we knew that that was the right time to go to the public markets, explain to them that in you know our lead molecule was moving into Phase three. We had a secondary indication for that molecule in allergic conjunctivitis. We had a pipeline that had come out of our platform, and we had a a new molecule ready to move into the clinic probably in early 2016. Taken all together, there was a sustainability and a real opportunity for value creation that had us, you know, very encouraged to go to the public investors, and obviously they could see that value and, and chose to participate in, in helping us uh, finance our project. That was a great story for last year. So, so what has life been like on, on the public markets? Clearly, dealing with public investors are, is more complicated. They've got different priorities than the folks that uh, the VCs like um, Third Rock have. I mean, they're more likely to react quickly to news, good or bad. In fact, your stock took seemed to take a slight dip right before OIS and some phase two results that you actually presented in a, in a positive light, but there seemed to be some reports that presented in a negative light. Uh, how, how are you uh, managing being a public company? So I think that it's a, it's a great question. There's a lot of things that change um, for parts of the company when you go public. 
you know, a lot of the things that you have to do to be compliant from the, you know, reporting requirements of a public company. Also being, I, I would say, a little bit more, uh, you know, selective in the kinds of information that are, you know, discussed openly uh, or speculatively, right? You have to really be on your on top of your game with your story when you're talking to the public markets. But I think that, you know, the biggest difference is this wonderful opportunity to engage a broad spectrum of investors, investors who are, you know, really in it for the long haul, but also have seen a lot of different opportunities and they're, they're very open to the time it might take for a, a drug to be developed and they understand the twists and turns that development takes. So it really is um, just a great way of getting a, a broader diversity of investors into the company. I think that the other thing that's been really exciting for us, you do have some flexibility in the strategic inflection points that allow you to go back to the markets and raise some money. And so I think that all of those things taken together make it a really the right thing to do for a company that's especially in your stage development as we are. And, you know, when you, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, sort of ebb and flow of the uh, stock price. You really have to keep your eye on the ball of what you're doing with development. You can't watch the stock price mm-hmm. on a day-to-day sure. basis. Um, but, you know, you do your report data, and data is, um, you know, even in our allergic conjunctivitis study where we had statistically significant improvements in three different endpoints, ocular itching, nasal symptoms, and tearing in patients with um, moderate to severe allergic conjunctivitis who have been stimulated to have very robust allergic responses, we did see this great data um, in one model. We just didn't see it in a second model. So we're very excited about what it means to have seen it in the one model that we did, and it's a model that the FDA is familiar with and a lot of care wells are familiar with, so we're excited about having the opportunity to bring EBI double to those patients as well as the patients with dry eye. How about internally as a public company? Does it change your, your leadership style, your management style? I was in getting ready for this discussion. I was uh, going to some newspaper articles and, and you were asked in one article to describe your leadership style. And I really like the, the, the idea you put forth of servant leadership where you surround yourself with people who you basically trust and you stand behind them and you hold them up and you give them what they need to be successful. Is that a core foundation of your leadership style? And do you change that as a public company? Do you have to manage people differently? So the answer to the last part or the first part of, is that still my management style? Very much. Yes. Mm -hmm. I do believe that the only way to succeed in something as complicated as drug development is to have a broad spectrum of, um, experts who are working with you and brainstorming with you and executing with their talent. And it's my job to do whatever I can to get them what they need in order to succeed, whether I'm out there raising money or um, helping them figure out strategies or using our board to um, think about different ways of, of approaching things or using our board's network. All of those things are what we do to make sure that the people who are responsible for discovering and developing the drugs for these patients can can do what, what, what we need them to do. And as far as it changing in a public company, it really doesn't. It actually becomes even that much more important. We know that the public investors very much look at the leadership team and they look at the um, company's ability to execute and do they maintain the commitments that they've made to the street as far as their timelines 
and their transparency. And as a result, you really have to continue to be that kind of a servant leader to make sure that your group is able to deliver to the uh, investors what you've committed to them. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very much the same whether you're in a private company or a public company to shore your group up and make sure that they have what they need to do, what you're asking them to do. Great. And you've got obviously a a big year coming up. I know uh, in his year-end report last year, uh, Emmett uh, identified your uh, phase three trial of EBI 005 as a as a as something to watch as a as, as a real important uh, important uh, uh, event in in 2015. Can you talk a bit about the the phase two trials? You hit upon dry eye earlier a little bit. Uh, it's an area that's in dire need of new products. Uh, what can you say about about the disease and about your approach to to uh, to providing some relief? Yeah, thanks. No, that's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> <I do. laughs> I'm sure it is. So, I mean, one of the main things, the main premise behind uh, Eleven as a company is that we're very much a biology-driven company. We really take the time to understand the deep biology behind a disease, understand the targets that drive a disease, understand the best way to design and engineer molecules that can complete those targets, and then really importantly, the same innovation that we put towards discovering the drug we put towards developing the clinical trial. And in the case of EBI-05 phase three trial for dry eye disease, we took extra care to understand the best patient population, understanding um, moderate to severe patients, patients that weren't too severe but also weren't so mild uh, in disease that we couldn't see a response, understanding the incredibly complex regulatory requirement that you hit a sign and a symptom. So co-primary endpoints in dry eye has been one of the key challenges in development for dry eye. And so when we designed our phase three trial, we were careful to enroll patients who met uh, inclusion criteria for both signs and symptoms Mm -hmm. so that we knew that they would be able to respond to the drug. Also understanding things that complicate clinical trials, for example, when patients use artificial tears during a clinical trial, it can actually impact the um, vehicle response, which the way you get a drug proved in dry eye is to compare the drug to the vehicle, and you have to show this statistically significant difference in both that sign and the symptom, so you want to remove confounding factors. And then very, very importantly, understanding the environment that the patients are being tested in and keeping it as a natural environment that represents how the patients um, exist on a day-to-day basis and you study them in that same environment so that you can, you know, really uh, test the drug as it will eventually be used. And using our phase three data where we saw very robust uh, improvement in ocular pain um, as well as improvement in the corneal fluorescein staining, which is a sign of dry eye, we have a great connection between the biology of IL-1 and how IL-1 drives the ocular surface inflammation that, that drives the signs, but also drives the sensation of pain because we know that there's receptors for IL-1 on corneal nerves. So when you sort of wrap it all up, you've got the biology of IL-1 driving both the signs and the symptoms of dry eye and a very innovative trial design that uh, will allow us to, um, you know, we think have a very high probability of success. 
And that study, our first phase three study, which had started early in 2014, has completed enrollment. And we anticipate having a readout in the second quarter of 2015. So we're very excited about that coming up. That's great. So no, probably no news before our OIS conference in, in April before ASSERS. No, not not quite. We're, we're pushing for it, All but right. not quite probably. We'll, we'll save it for November then. Um, yeah. <laughs> Abby, thank you so much, so much for so much for taking some time today and for sharing the story. And uh, we look forward to hearing some very positive news from Eleven going forward. Great, thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to that great interview with Abby Selnicker of Eleven Biotherapeutics. Next week, OIS podcast takes a walk on the device side with a sit down with Bob Greenberg of Second Sight. Please listen in. Join the Surgical Ophthalmology Innovators on April 16th in San Diego for OIS at ASCRS, where you will see and meet the leading companies and clinicians. The now expanded program features a showcase of emerging technologies to treat the most pressing anterior segment diseases, while also including plenary talks and discussions around business, regulatory, and finance. Hear what Jim Mazo has to say. I would tell you that OIS is now the come-to meeting in ophthalmology, and the reason is, is you're able to bring industry, practitioners, innovators in one audience discussing not what's happening today, but what's happening tomorrow. Very rarely do you have a meeting where you're discussing the future of an industry. You're usually talking about the presence, and that's why people come to this meeting, because they're hearing about things today that will impact our industry tomorrow. Visit OIS.net and sign up today.